And if you will, take your Bibles. There should be a pew Bible close to you if you do not have a copy of the Bible with you this morning. And in that uh, Bible, you can find our passage this morning on page 479. That's 479, and we're going to be in Psalm 63. Psalm 63. We're going to begin this morning by reading the text before us. And so if you'll turn there. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon You in the sanctuary, beholding Your power and glory. Because Your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise You. So I will bless You as long as I live. In Your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise You with joyful lips. When I remember You upon my bed and meditate on You in the watches of the night, for You have been my help, and in the shadow of Your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to You. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. I pray that it would resonate in our hearts and minds as Your Spirit works to reveal its truths to us. It is by Your power and Your power alone that we can understand these things. So help us. In Christ's name, Amen. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a, in a hospital for an extended stay or, you know, laid up for a while, you know, like Miss Shirley is. But when you're in that particular sort of a situation, you have lots of time to think. Lots of times to consider, you know, your life, to consider uh, things around you. I remember when I was an 11-year-old boy... I had a compound fracture, and I was out of school for a little over a month, and um, I was just, I just laid around, watched TV and stuff like that, but I remember the things that would go through my head. I, I, it's amazing what I can remember from that time, and, and I remember thinking about my friends at school and just all the things that were going on with them and what I might be missing. I didn't miss school, but I missed my friends, obviously. I wondered there for a while if I could really ever walk again. Uh, When my compound fracture happened, um, my dad told me afterwards, much later afterwards, that they considered amputating my my foot. And... um, but, you know, they got it back and it worked and, you know, they did skin graft and, you know, this kind of thing. And so I'm sitting in a, in a cast and they kept talking about the growth plate. And, you know, I might walk like this, you know, like Chester from Gunsmoke in the old days. Uh, and so I just wondered, am I ever going to be able to walk again? Can I take a stroll in the woods? Because I love to walk in the woods. Um, one of the most things I missed, which, which is interesting, was motorcycles, because that's what I did. I rode motorcycles. And I would lay on that bed, and my leg would be up, and I would think about the smells and the, and the thrill and the skills of riding, and you know, hoping that like that next week, that new uh, dirt bike magazine would come in the mail so I could look at it and think about it. 
So things like that, when they occur, when you're down, what's interesting, if you really stop and think about it, is, is that lots of thoughts begin to flow and yearnings and, and, and deep desires. And what it does is it reveals things in our own hearts. Like when you look at the list that I just went through for you, what did it reveal about an 11-year-old boy's heart at that time? You see that. Well, this psalm reveals something in David's heart for us to see. It begins with these words, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, while we're not absolutely certain to the time of this writing, most agree, most scholars agree, that this, the evidence of it points to the time when David's own son, Absalom, was taking over Jerusalem. Can you imagine? I can't. And with this unbelievable, tragic situation as David flees for his life, as he takes people with him, as he's unsure of who to trust, of all the things that are going through his heart and mind, this psalm reveals a heart for God, a desire for God, and it points our desires in the right direction if we'll hear it and listen to it. So let's begin with this question. Have you ever really been thirsty? Have you ever been thirsty? I've told this story before, but it fits so well here. Years ago, in my, uh, my in-laws flew our whole family, which was uh, four of us at the time. Uh, it was a long time ago. Four of us at the time to Colorado to ski for Christmas. And, and it, was, it really was fantastic. It was that winter wonderland picture that you always see, you know, in cards and stuff like that. And we got a house right there on the ski slope. It was so much fun. Um, and it was real snow, not the icy stuff that you get in North Carolina, you know. So it was a really great trip to remember. But there's one thing that really stood out to me as we were riding up the slope one, one day. Chris and I were sitting beside this college girl beside us, and we were talking to her. And I just looked at the side of her face, and it was interesting. Her ears were cracked. And then, and then I looked at her lips, and her lips were cracked, and she was kind of crusty. And I realized I've been waking up every night four or five times just so thirsty. So thirsty. Uh, Chris's mother had some medical issues while we were there, and so he, the doctor told Bruce, he says, you cannot drink enough water here. You have to continue to drink water. It seems like it's this wetland because of all the snow, but it's so dry. So drink and drink and drink water. Now, no matter what it was like in Colorado, as I would wake up in the middle of the night, fumbling around trying to find my water bottle, I've never known what it's like to be thirsty. Now, I have been to the Great Salt Plains in Oklahoma in the middle of the summer. And I have actually been in the sand dunes at Kitty Hawk in North Carolina in the middle of the summer. So I can almost imagine what it would be like. David knows exactly what it's like to be thirsty, running away in the wilderness. And that's what's going on here. He has run away and he is, he is, he is thirsty. And in his times of fleeing from his enemy, he has been to the desert. The wilderness here for David triggered a metaphor. And it was obviously in a place of great contemplation for him. In his troubles, in his fears, in his thirst, in his thoughts, his deepest desires were brought to one. 
Oh God, my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I wonder, if I were to run in uh, from someone who wanted to kill me, would my chief desire be God? In the midst of tragic news or daily crisis or even small aggravations, do my thoughts and desires turn to God? It is often in these times that we see our true faith or maybe our lack of it. David thirsts for his God. Both with soul and body, he desired God. And how might a troubled king of old help us in our desire for God? We want to look at several principles that come through this, this psalm this morning. And then, and then see how it kind of points us in the right direction as we apply them. So the first thing I want you to see this morning from this text is God is personal to David. He is personal to David. Oh God, you are, what does he say? My God. He's my God. Kinder says that this is not the groping of a stranger feeling his way toward God, but the eagerness of a friend, almost of a lover, to be in touch with the one he holds dear. Those are powerful words. David knows God, and God knows David. David has a personal relationship with him, and it's real. It's not imaginary. It's not some psychological frenzy that people have to have. It is not some uh, philosophical idealism. This is real. It's personal. If you look down to verse 2, you will see that David had seen God in the sanctuary. He longs for the communion with him that he had previously experienced at the sanctuary. Uh, here, he had gazed upon and, made, and meditated upon the power and the glory of the Creator. Now, we know that this is not like he sees God real, but he sees the power. He sees the, the things that are being communicated there. So you can almost see in his mind as he envisions the ark. And the sights, and the smells, and the priests, and the liturgy, and the sacrifices, and the songs are ringing in his mind. And in the reading of the law, all the rituals of the old covenant worship were reinforced in his mind. And they pointed to the greatness of his God. And David was so far away from that, wasn't he? He wasn't near the, temp, uh, the, the tabernacle. He wasn't near the place where God was. But he knows. Though I may be a far away from that place where I am mostly satisfied, you are never far from me. You are never far from me. His power and His glory are yet before Him, as well as His loving kindness. The text goes on. The loving kindness of the Lord, he says, is better to Him than life itself. How could he say that? Because he knows it's true. He is the glorious one. He is life itself. In Him, my life is nothing in comparison. It's, it's the things David is thinking here. As one commentator put it, a desert of trails... 
I'm sorry, a desert of trials and tribulations in which thirst are never satisfied is what David is talking about here. He knows he can be satisfied in the Lord because of his loving kindness. He'd experienced the steadfast love of the Lord. This brought praise to his lips. Throughout his life, um, he was threatened and in peril and in danger. But it always faded out of sight in the consciousness of God's faithfulness and love as his hands were lifted up as an outward symbol of an uplifted heart. And so the question I have for you is, is first of all, is God your God? Is He a personal God to you? Have you experienced His power and glory and steadfast love? Think about that. Do I know Him? Do I know Him? The second thing that we want to see here is that God is a priority to David. He says, earnestly I seek you. I, I, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in verses 2 through 4. The verbal phrase here, earnestly I seek, is derived from the Hebrew root year, which uh, the noun uh, dawn is related to. This uh, 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 etymology gave rise to the tradition of treating Psalm 63 as a morning psalm. It was looked upon as a morning psalm to get up and sing the first thing in the morning. And some, if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version with you, even the translation there is not eagerly or earnestly I seek you, but early I will seek you. And that's where some of our thinking comes from. Early I will seek you. And our modern translations emphasize the eagerness rather than the time of seeking. As the verb denotes a diligent search for godly wisdom as the most important thing to life. And so the search for God is also expressed here in metaphors associated with the desert. It's, it's thirst, it's faint, it's yearning, it's longing, as some translations have it. It is important to note that this seeking, this priority of God is connected directly to the personal relationship that begins the psalm. God is, is David's God. He is connected in a, in a personal relationship. And so therefore, he becomes um, uh, caught up in God being a priority in his life. He is so good and so glorious. He must become a priority. And to David, he was. Now some people, and I, and I, want, to, I want you to help see a distinction here in what I'm trying to say from the Bible, okay? You need to look at the Bible and say, is this pastor speaking the truth here? Okay? But contemporary churches today are often billed as seeker-friendly. But it's interesting, I find in Scripture, that it says no one seeks God. Isn't that interesting? The, uh, for example, in Psalm 14, 2-3, it pictures God as searching in vain for even one heart that seeks Him. And the passage is quoted again in Romans 3, uh, 10 through 12, which says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. We have biblical evidence galore on this, don't we? What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned against God? They hid. They ran away. Um, what did the Israelites do 
They chased after other gods. They ran after them and they turned away from their God. We not only read about this, but we also know it by experience. Now listen to me. Understand the distinctions here. People may be interested in spiritual things, but that does not mean that they're interested in the Creator God. Does that make sense? They could be interested in all kinds of spiritual things, but that doesn't mean they're interested in the Creator God. Let me ask you another question. How many times have you invited someone to worship? Or you've invited someone to a study? Or invited them to participate in a conversation about God only to be met with resistance? All the time. If people were truly seeking God, don't you think that this place would be filled to the brim? Because people would be here each week going, I want to know where God is. Where's God? Where is He? The Bible says, and here's the thing, that it is God that seeks us. It is the Lord that seeks us. Jesus, it says in Luke 19, came to seek and to save the lost. Therefore, if you were to say that you have a friend or a loved one who's going to church and they're seeking after God, here's the trick. It's only because God has been seeking after them. It is because He has been knocking on their heart door. It is because He desires to have a relationship with them. And He's working in them. Once he works in a heart of a person, that person has been, and that person has been drawn to him in salvation, then and only then would he desire to seek after God and to see his glory. Then and only then. Now, when that happens, and this is the thing that ties this particular um, principle to the first principle, I, I'm, I'm God's my priority. He's a personal God. It ties these two together. When this happens, okay, J.I. Packer calls this a faith view. And what he means by this is this. We are melted by spiritual understandings of truths we hear or read in Scripture. This is where God makes Himself known through the Word in a very real and deep and personal level. And the issue is, is that unbelievers simply cannot understand it. And, and, and you feel like, I can't explain it to you. I want you to have it. I want you to know it. How many times have you gone to someone and said to them, you know, I, I, this is the Lord and they reject you and everything in you says, if you could just see. And what we do is we look at that and we say, they must be dumb. They must be in a tell. They must not be thinking right. You have to think right. It's the Spirit of God that works in that. It is He that reveals those things. And once that is revealed to us, and once we have that in our hearts, and we have that faith view, I've often thought as I'm struggling to share my faith with someone and, and they start asking all these questions about the Bible, and is it real, is it, you know, is it accurate, what about the church, and what about hypocrites, and on and on and on and on, you know. And, and I'm like, if you just knew him. The questions stop in his presence. 
Now, sometimes in the middle of the night, which we're going to talk about in a minute, they come back. But in His presence, they always stop. Because He's a glorious God. David had that personal relationship with Him. God became a priority with him. And and, and he models this idea of this faith view here for us. Once God becomes real to him, he cannot help but become a priority. That's what we see here. And so, as we think about this in terms of application, if no one seeks God until God is working in them, how might your thoughts of evangelism be directed differently? Do you see why those yellow cards that we, that we talk about from time to time and they come up, but why those are important? Because you are praying that the Lord would open up those hearts. How might this direct our evangelism itself? If they don't seek God and He came into the world to seek us, might He use us to seek others as His ambassadors? In other words, do we sit back and wait and hope? Maybe, you know, maybe this is the thing here. Is I've prayed and it's up to God and therefore it's totally up to Him in this. And it is, but yet He uses people. Think about the book of Acts. Think about the Gospels. Jesus sent His disciples out as, as His ambassadors, didn't He? He didn't say, well, let's just gather here and worship, the, and worship God the Father and uh, all these people come flocking. <laughs> he didn't, did he? He says, go. Go out there. Go out there. Make me known. As you are going, make disciples. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the othermost parts of the world. How might this inform our evangelism? That God is in control, so we don't have to worry. God is in control, and He uses us. Instead of being forced to find um, another thing, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Another thing that I want you to think about outside of the evangelism aspect of that is instead of being forced to find some time this year to get some extended time alone with the Lord, like being put in the hospital or, or being laid up for a while, being sick or something like that, maybe carve out a half a day or a whole day. And take yourself, your open Bible, uh, your pen and notebook and get away and read and journal. You have a calendar, right? Ron and I talk about calendars a lot. You got a calendar, you put down things, there's priorities there. It's got every priority on that calendar. Make it so. Give a half day to Him. You know, originally, when, especially when you read uh, the Ten Commandments, Sundays were to be set aside, weren't they? To worship God. I'll just leave it there. You think about that. The third thing I want you to see here is David's delight in God. Look at his delight. Uh, Verses 5 through 8, My soul will be satisfied. I will remember my soul clings. Uh, First of all, David's delight comes from a great satisfaction of provision. Looking at verse 5, it's contrasted to verse 1 where he says, My soul thirsts for you. Here in verse 5, he is saying strongly, My soul is satisfied. 
So he's going from thirst to satisfaction. Why? Because he's diving in deeper. This is the Lord. I'm thirsty for Him. And as I drink Him, look what happens. I'm satisfied. He expresses His bounty of sanctification in a metaphor of a a banquet, uh, uh, filling the hungry soul with rich and bountiful food, which raises praise from His lips. So he's satisfied. The second thing that we see here in this is is that I know many of you have had sleepless nights. Uh, You've spent those nights in worry. You've spent those nights in anxiety or fear or even sorrow. During the time of the Old Testament, um, the night was divided into three watches. And if you were up for those three watches, that meant what? That you were restless and didn't get a lot of sleep. For David, though, what he did was he turned that around. You know, I think about it. I think about David. I'm like, what kind of worry would David have as king? I wonder. I wonder what kind of things he was struggling with as king. Hmm. Lots and lots and lots of things probably kept him up at night. And instead of thinking about those things, he instead arrested his mind. He remembered the Lord's past activities. He drew comfort and delight during the night when the shadows of adversity haunted him. He becomes so engrossed with the thought of his love that he turns his tossing into meditations. He rejoices in the shadows of Yahweh's wings, which expresses God's act of fellowship and protection. This is how God, uh, David was delighting in God. And thirdly, you see here in this passage that David's delight in the Lord comes from his presence as he draws near. The Lord has promised to be close to His people, but He also expects His people to draw close to Him. The psalmist's assurance lies in the Lord, Lord, where He finds help, where He finds support. Therefore, He draws close to His God. This, it's interesting because this verbal expression here, my soul clings to you, is his response to God's invitation to hold fast, which is all throughout the book of Deuteronomy. God just says, hold fast to me, hold fast to me, hold fast to me. And David is just reverberating that, saying, my soul clings to you. I'm going to hold fast to you, Lord. David knows that the Lord will be true to his promises. And so he has even learned to sing while waiting. For the Lord's help. For waiting for that demonstration of the Lord's right hand once again. That right hand of strength. Does God satisfy you? Do you find bounty in His presence? When you toss and when you turn and when you move on your bed at night... Do you turn those, those, those thoughts into meditation of His glory and His love? Do you draw near to Him and expect His presence? One of the daily devotions I use um, is called Seeking His Face. And it's just a, it's a kind of an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, or vice versa. And then a, a, just some prayers And one of the things in it that it has this little section in between that it just kind of coaxes you into being reminded that you're in the presence of God. Now, do you know how helpful that is? To be reminded that you're in the presence of God when you're in a devotion? How many times have you gotten into your Bible and you read and you're sitting there and the next thing you know you're thinking about Jim down the street or you're thinking about your car that's got something to, to, to fix 
on it. Um, you're thinking about something at church. You're thinking about whatever the case may be. But in the middle of this little devotion, again, it says you're in the presence of the Lord in different ways. Come into His presence now. Think about who He is now. And I so appreciate that. And the question is, is when you go to Him, when you're there, when you're calling out to Him, do you really believe that you are in His presence? Do you trust and believe that you are in the grip and the grace of the Lord who created this universe? Or has it become just an abstract? Are you a practicing deist? Come to the Lord that He may really help you. Think about the possibilities of how He brings you into His presence. Is it possible that when your time with the Lord is stale or boring, it's because it's all about you and not Him? Seek His presence. Desire to be with Him. Finally, I want to look at... uh, the last couple of verses of this passage or of this psalm and consider God's defense of David. It's, I always find the psalms interesting because they move from this praise and this glory to God's enemies being just crushed. And that's what's going on. It's just interesting, isn't it? So here's David's, uh, God's defense of David. So here we see that those who seek David's life are emphatically contrasted to him. In other words, his way, his path, his upwardness toward God is not theirs. Uh, Theirs is downward to the depths of the earth or Sheol. So David's enemies face actually in the text here a horrible and shameful ending while he, the king, emerges triumphant. The imagery is quite shocking, isn't it? The enemies fall to a sword and are left unburied on the battlefield. And so what happens? Jackals actually come in packs and eat them. It's pretty gruesome, isn't it? Welcome to the Scripture. However, the king, David, shall rejoice in his God and express hope in the final triumph of justice. We must understand that David's trust in divine justice is, is the same as him trusting in a good God. Trust in a good God who is perfectly just and righteous. In other words, His justice, the Lord's justice is always right. And that means we may not always understand it. But His justice is always right. And so you ask the question here as we come upon this text, do I really trust Him? Do I trust that He is good? Can I just lay the judgment of all things in his, in his lap and, and, and realize that, hey, he's got this. It's all good. We're quick to say, I can't believe the Lord would do that. Aren't we? Will we trust him? That's what David is saying. I'm going to trust him. He's going to do this. It's in his power. Let me just say something I want you to think about here in the Bible. And again, it's one of these things where is the Bible, does the Bible teach this? Does the Bible say this? There are legitimate enemies of God. 
As a matter of fact, it's interesting in Scripture, isn't it? it? When Paul says, you once were enemies of God. It's funny because people who don't have faith don't think that way. And, and I, I don't blame them, but it's interesting how we often don't think that way for them. God will take care of His enemies. God will defend His people. Sometimes it seems like, you know, you know, Brian, when you're fighting the good fight of trying to save lives, that how in the world, what in the world, God do something. What he's saying here in this passage is, I will. I promise you, I will. In the meantime, he waits. And why would he wait? Because at the same time, our great God does not desire any that should perish, that it all come to eternal life. Now, what does that mean in the sovereignty of God? It's beyond me. It's mysterious. I know that judgment is true, and I know that He desires all to come to Him. But they don't. But His judgment is true. And so as we look at our enemies, we don't have the same enemies that, that, that David did, so we have to kind of look at that differently. When we look at the world, the flesh, and the devil, and however that manifests itself, we need to know that God will defend us. He will care for us. This brings us to the last application inside of this principle. And Derek Kidner had something very thoughtful for us to consider, and I think it kind of sums it up. When he, he says that when David says, but the king shall rejoice in God, he is not just using this as a synonym for I. What does he mean by that? This is what he says. If this is written from his banishment at the hands of Absalom, his son, the royal title becomes a reassertion of his calling, which was from God, and an avow that this cannot fail. So what he's saying is, is that when he says, I'm the king here, see, Absalom has, has said, I am king, but God never made Absalom king, did he? But God made David king. And so David's still the king, really. And so he's reasserting that here. That's what Kidner said. I think he's got a point. He goes on. A Christian parallel, one of many, can be found in the doxology of John, the prisoner who praised God even from Patmos for the liberty and royal priesthood which are his birthright and ours. If David's faith in his kingly calling was well-founded, Still, how much more is the Christians? So what he's saying here is, is that as David was king and God made him king and put him in that place, he was king. And what he's saying here to us is, is that we are prophet, priests, and kings in the Lord Jesus Christ. Prophet, priests, and kings in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. The great and only one. So as we are in Christ, we have Christ in us. So no matter what happens, that we can be sure of. That we can rest in. Just as David did here. So as we come to a close this morning, in those times of no distraction, when you are left to your most intimate thoughts in the wee hours of the night, what are your desires? What are your desires? 
C.S. Lewis brings to focus what David is leading us to here. Listen to what he says. Most people, if they had learned to really look into their own hearts, would know that they uh, know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love. Or first think of some foreign country. Or first take up some subject that excites us. Our longings, which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. Listen as he goes deeper here. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasp at in the moment of longing which just fades away in reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife and the hotel and the scenery may be excellent. But something has evaded us. If I find in my desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of the earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it. But to arouse it. To suggest the real thing. David knew the real thing. God was his God. And in light of his glory, his grace and his love, he was a priority to David. In the Lord, David found his delight. In David, he found, in him, David found his security. He is saying to us, come, come with me. And find all your desires met in the delight of God the Creator. Let's pray.